Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My guest today is a psychotherapist with more than 40 years of experience. After her cancer diagnosis in 2007, Cheryl Crowder began to focus on people who have been diagnosed with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses, as well as their partners, family members, and caregivers. Two books grew out of this work, a workbook for telling your cancer story and a guide for caregivers. Her latest book chronicles the unexpected death of her husband and the journey of grief and healing. It's called Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. Cheryl Crowder, welcome. Thank you, Nancy. I so appreciate being here this morning. Well, I think your story is one that would be helpful for people to hear because uh, they can't really prepare for something like you experienced. No. no. In fact, I um, <laughs> a few years ago in the New Yorker, the sketcher uh, Roz, uh, <laughs> you may be familiar with Roz Chast. Of her, yes. And she tried to bring up, she has in the sketch, a daughter trying to bring up death with her parents. And uh, she says, so do you guys ever think about things? And they say, what kind of things? You know, things, plans. She says, I have no idea what you guys want. Let's say something happened. Anyway, she doesn't yes, get anywhere yeah. with this conversation. Exactly. And I think your book may help people give this situation some thought that they might not otherwise. So I would like you, if you don't mind, to start at the very beginning of your book. Yes, I have it. Uh, I have it queued up here okay. to the sections, and um, and I appreciate what you're saying because every whatever I do, I, I always hope that there's a takeaway for people, and I, I hope that uh, people who have suffered from a, sh uh, a a sudden death or may experience it in the future will take something away from this. This is the day you realize how easily the thread is broken between this world and the next. David White. It's 3.30 a.m. My husband wakes up with back pain. Lying next to him in bed, barely conscious and groggy, I rub the spot. It feels tight, but after years of back problems, that's, that's nothing unusual. Unable to lie still, he gets up to go into the next room to stretch and I anxiously trail behind and stand, hovering, like he always hates me to do. Can I do anything? Get the foam roller, that might help. I hurry into the bedroom, grab our large foam roller, and bring it to him. I stand over him, watching as he adjusts himself on it, trying to work through the pain in his back, hoping something will pop and release the suffering. Nothing seems to be helping, but my job is to reassure him. He asked for some pain medication he was given, but he never took for a surgery earlier this year. He doesn't like pain meds, doesn't like how they make him feel. Later, I will realize this is the moment I should have known how wrong things were. But for now, I simply grab them from the medicine cabinet and hurriedly read the instructions. You can take two. No, he only wants one. Well, I think to myself, maybe it's not too bad then. I'm watching, and I can see the stretching isn't helping. He's lying on top of the roller and moving slowly, taking different positions, trying to unlock the tension. His breath labored. My heart begins to pound as I watch him struggle. He doesn't usually spend this much time working with the roller. He doesn't spend this amount of time out of bed trying to deal with pain. Mostly, he doesn't let on on how much pain he's experiencing. There's a cold feeling in my body as I watch him struggle, but I force myself to stay optimistic. We've been here before, I remind myself. Again, later I'll understand that I should have known this time was different. But you only see these things in retrospect. The intensity of my own anxiety, how concerned I felt when he asked for drugs, these were clues that this time wasn't the same as other times before. I should have known. 
I'm woozy. This is, <laughs> this is author Cheryl Crowder, and she's reading from her book, Odyssey of Ashes, about the middle of the night when her husband is suffering back pain. He goes into another room, and she tries to ease his pain. Um, and you say... Um, <laughs> you're, he thinks you're hovering. He doesn't like that. And, right. Uh, issues, right? That, yeah. That even in, yeah. Like and then you, so you just say, um, well, let me know if you need anything. Uh, yeah. Would you pick up reading there when you, what do you tell each other then after you ask to let you yeah. know if he needs anything? Uh, let me know if you need anything, I say. I love you, we tell each other. We'd had an agreement since the time of my cancer that these should always be the last words we speak before parting, just in case it's the last contact we ever had. We say I love you to each other. I leave him lying on the floor, stretching and dutifully pad back to bed. He'll be okay. He's not clammy. He's not nauseous. He's not short of breath. He'll be fine, I tell myself. So you... Um kind of following his wishes he he doesn't want you hovering so right. you just tell yourself oh he'll be fine right and so you go back and lie down but now how do you feel after you go back into the bedroom moments later after i lie down i suddenly feel panicky i'm clammy i am clammy i am nauseous i am short of breath maybe we have food poisoning what is happening as I attempt to get comfortable in bed, a terrible wind begins to howl all around me. It's a sound unlike any noise I've ever heard reverberating from the other room. It's like the winds of a tornado ripping through our home. Then a procession of noises, a deeply guttural gasp for air, a roaring snort combined with the loudest snore I have ever heard. These horrifying sounds are accompanied by the sound of a rushing watery release, a torrent of some kind of liquid. Is that a waterfall? Has the ceiling collapsed? You know, uh, Cheryl, this story, uh, it seems like it would be unique to you. But it wasn't just a short time ago that a friend named John, who lived in Berkeley, was uh, late for uh, a CAT scan. His friend goes in to wake him up, and um, he's missing his CAT scan. Later in the afternoon, the friend goes back, and John has not moved. John has died, mm -hmm. and he had so many health problems, not even sure what he died of. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the friend has to call for, uh, well, what, what did you experience after this? Well, you know, I, I, I sat next to him, and, and, and similarly, when you find somebody like them, of course, I had heard these horrible noises, which I, on, you know, ungodly, uh, you know, out of eerie noises. So um, it was right at the moment I was there um, and, you know, then ran back in the room and suddenly realized that he was not breathing. John, John, my husband, was not breathing and uh, called 911 at that point. And in the book, I detail uh, an incredibly annoying, frustrating <laughs> call with this 911 operator who kept asking me these inane questions, uh, you know, about is he on hospice, which, you know, maybe for, for, for your friend, the person you're talking about, he might have been on hospice. Actually, he, he wasn't. This was sudden. It was, I mean, he had head problem, health problems, but it was yeah. sudden and unexpected. I mean, he mm -hmm. just talked to his brother two days before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so the nine one one woman is giving you a hard time, really. Well, she's asking me, "Is he on hospice? Is this? Is that?" And I finally started, <laughs> I finally started square swearing at her. Just get these people here. Um, and to this day, I wonder. I don't know if, if it would have made any difference. But had she been quicker on the draw, um, you know, to get to get the the paramedics and and the firemen and everybody here and. You know, at this point, Nancy, it, it kind of becomes a blur, and I think this is how it is. Any kind of traumatic event, time stops. Um, you have no idea, uh, you know, what day is it? Where am I? It's, it's like time stops, and the world becomes very surreal. You know, and, and paramedics are rushing through the house. I have this old dog, and they're afraid of the old dog, and I have to then get the old dog into another room. She can't even hardly stand up, but they're afraid of the dog. So that takes some time. And they finally, you know, crash to the house. Um, 
and uh, start to to work on him, at which point um, a female uh, takes me into the other room, says, you know, I think we should go into the other room at this point. And uh, so I was then separated um, and taken into my kitchen while they were trying to work on on him. And um, yeah, at this point, my entire body, I began to shake. My entire body begins to shake, uh, which is another trauma response, by the way, because, you know, people go through trauma. These are the way, these are the symptoms, these are the experiences of a traumatic event. So the paramedics come in, and there's a big guy, the one that's afraid of your crippled old dog. Huge guy, big old guy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, um, so they have to, if they're going to administer CPR, of course, they have to put him on the floor, and they rip off his shirt, and and, uh, he's surrounded by all these instruments, and they bring out a defibrillator, which you would expect, yeah, and then they attach those um, adhesive pads to his chest. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 you stayed to watch, even though you were uh, the woman was saying, you know, maybe you'd better go in the kitchen. I stayed to watch for a while, but I did go then, and so uh, I was in the kitchen, and uh, you know, again at this point, shaking my entire body, shaking when I hear these big boots coming down the hall, and I think, oh my god you know, no, don't, 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 do not come here. And this big guy comes and says, you know, I have to let you know, I I cannot get a pulse. And then he goes back. And at this point, it becomes clear, you know, that um, what we're really dealing with here. Yeah. So, um, so you say you're sitting at your dining room table and, and, and you really don't know some of this is a blur. You say, how did I get here? And this fireman's talking to me and asking me questions and someone says something about an autopsy. And yeah. this is a case with a John in Berkeley that died suddenly. Um, mm-hmm. They actually, instead of asking, do you want an autopsy? They, he had so many health problems. They said, we're not going to do an autopsy. We're yeah. going to just say it was natural causes. But they ask you if you want an autopsy. And what, how did you deal with that question? Right. Well, it's, you know, there was a very handsome fireman. (laughs) I think they typically are. In my experience, firemen are very handsome. Bizarre that I noticed. Oh, look at this really handsome guy in my, in my, in my, my dining room here, which is very weird. And, and um, so I'm sitting at my dining room table and I I say, how did I get here? And um, this handsome fireman is talking to me, asking me questions. I'm lost in a foreign land. I do not speak the language. I cannot read the signs. Someone says something about an autopsy. Do you want an autopsy? I say, what? It really isn't necessary. There's been no crime. What? What is he asking me? No, no autopsy. Why? And then I'm signing some things. How many times have we all heard that we should always read a document before we sign it? But I cannot see the writing on the form. I don't know what I'm signing. It must be a document of death. There is no warranty involved. The fireman is kind and protects me from the big paramedic who is, ta- who is asking me things I cannot hear. And where is the woman? Has she, has she floated away? When did they all leave? And then this young policeman comes, Brandon. When did he arrive? He's caring and concerned. He asks me who can come to be with me. I don't know. I say, I don't know who can come. Who will come to be with me? What am I going to do? I run back to the family room and get back on the floor with John. I'm a mad woman on the ground. When I put my arms around him, I discover some adhesive patches the paramedics used to attempt to shock him back into life, still stuck to his chest. I carefully pull them off, not wanting to hurt him. Clutching John, I feel him flying out of his body like a comet hurling through space. My breath is taken away as I experience his departure as a strong gust of wind that knocks me back onto the floor next to him. He's carried away from me, from this world, to another place of consciousness, a land I cannot travel to. Not yet. We've talked about death as a spiritual transition for years, sharing our beliefs and reflections, But the conversation had taken on a serious sense of reality when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2007. We used to take bets on who would go first. On paper, it looked like I was the likely candidate, but he believed it would be him. I guess in the end, he won that bet. We sometimes wondered about how we would each die. He always said, oh, I'll probably just explode someday. 
This prediction was informed and fueled by his profound impatience, his quick temper, and his absolute inability to suffer fools gladly, and certainly not silently. After his pronouncement, we would laugh. On this dark morning, it's no longer funny. This is author and psychotherapist Cheryl Crowder. She has written a memoir of love, loss, and letting go, and the title of her book is Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Cheryl Crowder, who has written a memoir about the death of her husband. The book is entitled Odyssey of Ashes. So this Odyssey of Ashes is something that you're going to have to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the question that people often get, well, what are you going to do with the ashes? And mm-hmm. I got that question when my husband died nine years ago. People wondered mm-hmm. what I was going to do with the ashes. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's in my own case, it wasn't something I wanted to think about right away. Yeah, people, <laughs> the, people ask the darndest questions. Yeah, at these, don't they? It's like what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, I hope your book will help uh, people who maybe down the road might go through something similar, but uh, will be more understanding of friends and family when well, people exactly. they know will and go through it. People are well-meaning, and this happens in, in you know, an illness like in oh, cancer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, what I think could be helpful, I mean, I, John and I had, had <laughs> unlike the Roz Chast comment, <laughs> we had actually talked about what we wanted. Uh, we had actually talked about death and dying and you know, had had told each other, this is what I would like, this is what I would like. In a way, you know, I think that is very responsible and respectful. You know, it's not an easy conversation. And I think that, you know, particularly in our culture, which I, I don't know, perhaps other cultures, but I can speak to our culture, is that we don't talk about death. We're afraid of it, and we, we uh, deny it. We make it something that is not something can be verbalized and spoken of so that it can even in, in long illnesses, can be a shock, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in your case, you had no no warning at all. In fact, because you were the one that had cancer, uh, mm-hmm. it seemed like, well, logically, you'll be the one to go, Cheryl, because of exactly. your experience with cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you um, experience um, this... Uh, what do you do with the ashes? But you um, shared an experience with your husband that something that you wouldn't have done by yourself. But what did he love to do? He used to like to go to Montana. And what took him off to Montana? Well, my husband was an expert fly fisherman. He had been doing that since he was a boy. So he loved to fish uh, great rivers. He loved to wade small streams. He was passionate about this sport. He loved it. And uh, (laughs) he desperately, when we first got together, desperately wanted me to join him. And uh, we made the mistake of him trying to be my my teacher at the beginning. (laughs) That pretty much (laughs) almost ended the relationship before it really began. So uh, we learned quickly for me to have other guides, other teachers, um, because I did enjoy joining him. I really did enjoy being on the rivers. Uh, I never mastered, uh, to put it mildly, (laughs) 
the the art of fly fishing, but it was something that we shared, and that was his wish. He he uh, his wish for his ashes was to have them scattered by a trout stream or a great river. So I knew that um, because that was you know again a great love of his life was to be on a river and to cast a line and to fly fish. Well, so, now you two had a son named Ben. And we do. It, I would think it would be a father's delight if his son would share this passion. Was that the case? Uh, no. <laughs> in fact, um, there's a there's a chapter in the book that um, is about uh, Ben and John and their relationship, which which was rocky at times. Uh, John had wanted Ben to uh, learn to fly fish way before really he was uh, old enough or capable to do it, and so that that could be some of the family outings would end not in a, a whole lot of fun. And it was, uh, it, it could be rocky along the way. So he, he soon sort of let go of that. And um, at one point when John and I were fishing, we, we took a beautiful trip uh, down um, Colorado River through the Vermilion Cliffs, which was magnificent. And the guide told the story of how he had taught his son how to fly fish, which was just by leaving a rod close by and letting him pick it up. At which point John really realized um, some of the mistake he'd made. And it was really one of the great sorrows of his life, really. And uh, it was fortunate that he did live long enough after a kind of a blow up uh, when, when my son was at college for them to begin to repair some of the relationship uh, that had happened between them. And um, that was really starting to happen. And I'm very grateful that it was starting to happen and that they had had a chance to you know, sort of process and talk about some of the difficulties of the relationship that they had. Ironically, I still have rods and had <clears throat> thought about selling some of them. And Ben at this point is saying, no, don't sell them because you never know I might take it up. Oh, how sweet. Well, uh, uh, you also say that um, it was just the night before John died mm. that Ben and John had their last conversation. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> my son was just finishing up his degree at his, his bachelor's degree at UCLA in, and had done a presentation and had been given some honors for this presentation for the work that he had done. And so he called to, to talk to us about it. And they had a, a really great conversation. There was a lot of laughter and appreciation and respect. And that was the last conversation they ever had. And yes, I'm so grateful for that. I mean, literally less than 12 hours later, I had to make a call at, uh, you know, about 530 in the morning. Um to tell Ben that his father had died. My guest is Cheryl, Cheryl Crowder. Her book is Odyssey of Ashes. And you um, are not by nature inclined to be a fly fisherman, but you get good enough at it that you yeah. shocked <laughs> when you went. Well, what were the circumstances under which you went back to Montana? Well, this, this was really remarkable. And actually, these, this was the circumstances, I would call it really synchronistic, that, that uh, was the basis for me writing this book. I really hadn't thought about writing a book about this. But I was up in uh, Lake Tahoe on a trip with some friends that we, the, there were supposed to be four of us. Uh, and um, John had died. So uh, the couple came there. They live in Seattle. They're, they're actually in the, the book quite a bit, my friends Bill and Shosh Woods. And we had just, we were hiking, and of course I had my stupid cell phone with me, which I had not silenced, and we're in this beautiful hike, and the cell phone rings, and I'm so annoyed with myself, and I, I silenced the cell phone, get back to the car, and there's a message from a woman named Peg, who is the, um, she's one of the leaders of an organization called Casting for Recovery, which is an organization that takes women who've had breast cancer for retreats uh, and teaches them to fly fish because the motion of casting a fly is very good for a condition called lymphedema. So John had been a river helper. I had had the great fortune of going on one of these retreats and John became what they call a river helper after my retreat. River helpers are experienced fly fisher people who at the end of the retreat come on and take these women into a river and help them fly fish. So he'd done this for nine years, very, very important to him. And each year, this organization has a gala and a raffle where they raffle off 
a guided fly fishing trip for two, um, which is usually a float trip down a river, usually in Montana. And every year he bought a $50 ticket and, you know, hoped he could win. It was one of his great dreams. And so the year when we were in, uh, I was hiking, this is Peg calling me to tell me, you know, um, we've just had the gala. John had bought a ticket, and she said on the message, I couldn't help myself. I put it into the basket. And she said, Cheryl, when it was time to draw it out, I drew out his name. And they had been friends, so it was very, she was very emotional. She said, I couldn't, I couldn't read his name. I had to hand it to somebody else. So they offered the trip to me, and I took it. And this gave me the chance to take his ashes to a river that he had never actually fished the Madison River. He'd fished other rivers in Montana, but never the Madison. So I took these ashes to the Madison River uh, to fulfill a promise uh, for him. That was very synchronistic and Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, based on what you said uh, later in your book about John after he died, you know, it occurred to me, you know, he was really taking care of Cheryl. I don't know how he did it, but I think he was, <laughs> I think he somehow arranged that. Yeah. But, <laughs> he probably, so, if, if at all he could, he probably, that would be who he was. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, off you go to Montana and uh, the morning of the trip, you put your fishing clothes on and <laughs> you meet a guy that is named Mike Elliott. Mm-hmm. And his nickname is Dirty Mike. Yeah, his nickname and is Dirty. <laughs> why was his nickname Dirty Mike? You know, I never found out. I asked one of the other guides, and they just kind of looked slyly at me. So I, I wasn't sure uh, why why that was his nickname. Um, he he didn't look dirty. I mean, he had a had his you know most fishermen they have their <clears throat> their old battered hats. And certainly when you if you ever fish in Montana or any of these great rivers, you see people who come to the rivers and pay a lot of money for these guides. And the people who come are always you know very fancily dressed and they're you know in the, the best clothes and so on. The guides are often in jeans and battered hats and they're the ones that really know what they're doing that's how you can kind of spot them but boy old dirty mike took one look at me and and just thought oh brother and i thought (laughs) wow this is going to be a really great day (laughs) but off we went and um my my initial plan was to uh, that i would scatter some of the ashes along that river but i pretty quickly realized that no this was not this was really not not the time to do it so we just began to fish and uh, after I began casting uh, and pulling up some really wonderful trout, and by the way, it's all catch and release. We don't, you know, le- kill any of these fish. He caught on that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> to his and, surprise, and it seemed. To his yeah. great surprise. And literally, it, it all changed. And then classic of me, I mean, I am a psychotherapist, and, and people do tend to tell me their stories. By the end of the day, I knew everything about him. I knew about his girlfriend. I knew his story. Uh when, when we were driving away, he drove me by the house where he lived. And so we, you know, it was one of those moments where you meet somebody and you first think, oh boy. And then you, for, for a moment in time, there's a bond and a special connection. And then you part and you know, you'll never see that person again. And in any other walk of your life, you would probably never meet. But it's in that moment of time that, that you join with somebody. And I think if we're open-hearted, you just never know how that can happen, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you had told him that you had fished over years with your husband. That's why yeah. you had the skill that you did. Yeah. And then you tell him that your husband died and that it was yeah. his raffle ticket that won that trip. Yeah. And, and that he died before the ticket was drawn. I, I just imagine his not really knowing what to say. He didn't know what to say. <laughs> I think he just he just kind of looked out in the river and that was it. You know, there was and that was actually it's a good point, Nancy. That was the point where I realized, oh no, we're not scattering any ashes on this trip. <laughs> this is this is not gonna happen today. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were but saying you don't need later, his blessing. Um, that day I did um there was a sort of farm to table dinner at the at the place was generously offered by by uh, people who own a a, a fly fishing motel uh, in this area farm to table dinner and I was sitting next to a man and oh you know he looks at me and he says oh what were you doing I said well I was fishing and he said oh 
you were the woman out in the river today. And I said, yeah, I was. And this was one of the great moments of my life. He says to me, you know, we were all thinking, wow, she can actually catch. <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I knew a guy who was living in Southern California, and he was told to move to Montana and take up fly fishing. So he he's cleared his mind was at rest. When uh -huh. he was fly fishing, it was a chance. Just he wasn't in in bothered by thinking, yes. like so many of us are, and that that uh, was why he was sent to to fly fish in Montana. Oh, interesting. What a great assignment! Because it's true, you know. There's something about standing in a river in the middle of nowhere with trees around and you know whatever birds are flying the insects there's a there's a quietness and a peacefulness that is astounding and it's true and plus, if you're really fly fishing you cannot be thinking about anything else believe me i know <laughs> <laughs> so you go out on the madison river with mike and you decide no nah, this is not i'm not going to scatter the ashes today no, no. Uh -huh. So you, uh, you're wondering, okay, now what do I do? I've got to find a place. Mm -hmm. And so off you go, and you're not having any luck. And then something very interesting happens that I think people who've had, probably more people have had a similar experience than will admit to it. Because if they admit it, people are going to say, oh, the poor dear, she's just yeah. lost it. <laughs> Arm around the bend, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, is there anything you want to tell us before? I'd like for you to read the page in your book, mm -hmm. When yeah. a Voice Comes to You. Yeah. And, well, yeah. To set this up, uh, I, it was the day after the fly fishing trip. And, you know, it's close to Yellowstone Park. So I thought, well, I'll, you know, go up to Yellowstone. And I go up and I, you know, look around. And I all the way, I'm, I'm looking, trying to find a place along the Madison River. And then I realized, oh, no, this is... Uh, I'm not in Montana right now. I'm in Wyoming. So I had to go back the other way. And as I'm going back, this horrendous storm starts to happen. I've never been in a storm like this before or after. Uh, lightning, thunder, rain that was torrential. Uh, I was driving a small car through this incredible storm trying to find a place to scatter these ashes. And I keep stopping and stopping and uh, trying to find the place. And so I'll pick up from there. Um, say moment to moment, the changing weather seems to parallel my emotions. So I scour the land for a place to scatter John's ashes. Then a voice comes to me saying, I will guide you. I will tell you where you need to go. Where is this coming from? Some place of knowledge within me? Is it John talking me through this, pointing out the way? Have I totally lost whatever shred of sanity I possess before embarking on this odyssey? At first, I ignore the voice and continue my relentless search, stopping the car, starting it again, stopping, starting, going nowhere. But the more insistently I disregard the voice, the louder it becomes. I told you, I will tell you where to turn, where you will find the spot, it shouts. Then, finally annoyed and frustrated, it says, this is how it always is. You never listen to me. <laughs> this phrase delivered in this tone of voice is unmistakably John's. Some believe our loved ones watch over us, that they do not really leave us when we die, but remain in contact, offering solace and guidance. These are mysteries that cannot be proven. They're not measurable or evidence-based, and I make no pretense of knowing what is true. But I do know the energy and voice of my husband, and right now I feel the presence of the man I was with for almost half my life, guiding and scolding me, coming to help me. I decide to trust what I'm hearing and allow myself to be led by him. At least this way, I'll avoid an argument. <laughs> <laughs> this is psychotherapist Cheryl Crowder. She's reading from her book, Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. After a break, I'll be continuing my conversation with author Cheryl Crowder. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Cheryl Crowder. She's reading from her book, Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. So you're out trying to find a place to scatter the ashes, and you hear this voice, and you think, gosh, I don't know what this voice is. But it's when he says, this is how it always is. You never yeah. listen to me. And that was it. You knew then who yeah. <laughs> this voice belonged to. And I, I do know of a, a woman who's, after her husband died, friends uh, heard or saw him. And um, when one friend used a term of endearment that is not common, that was her clue that, yeah, this woman, it really is a message from my husband because nobody knew that that was a term that he referred yeah. to me with. And yeah. so your yeah. clue was his personality was coming across. Yeah. yeah. Now, mm-hmm. um, I'm glad you included that because, like I say, I think other people have experiences similar, but they don't tell that they do for yeah. thinking, oh, gosh, they're really going to think I've lost it. So yeah. have you had any um, feedback in that regard? I haven't, but, you know, I have to No, I, I really haven't. Of course, I don't know. It's not to my face. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, the minute this book, literally the minute this book went off to the printer where there was no going back, it was all done and it was going to go out, I thought to myself, what have I done? Because I am a psychotherapist, I have clients, I have students, I have people I consult with. I work with, I work in the cancer communities, the metal, medical profession, who is not, you know, not so, uh, con- you know, kind about this sort of thing. And I thought, oh my God, I have just, you know, shown every part of myself. Because you rely on credibility. People want credibility if they're going to go to a psychotherapist. And I thought, wow, well, you know, this, here we go. And uh, because really, even some of the closest people to me uh, had no idea of some of the inner, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a struggle, inner journey that I went through. Uh, The the woman who, uh, Brooke Warner, who's the um, publisher of She Writes Press uh, and my editor for many years, was the one person who had been along on this book. She was the one person that knew every inch of this odyssey. But many people had no idea. So I put it out and, um, you know, it, it, it's gotten quite a lot of, um, you know, good good reviews, good praise. People have really liked this book. I'm sure some people have hated it, but that's how it goes. But, you know, what's true is that what I came to after I first thought, oh, my God, you know, what have I done? I now come to, in terms of my writing, in terms of who I am in the world, you know, at this point, everything, the beans are spilled. And in a way, it's very freeing because there's nothing to hide anymore. And so that has informed me moving forward in my life to let go of, well, does it really matter if people think I'm nuts? You know, they'll think what they think anyway, and I'm just going to continue on who I am. And so there's a level of freedom and transformation in this. Now, you mentioned transformation, and uh, I like the quote. Your your book is in two parts, part one, part two. The page where you start part two, you quote from the Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. If you listen carefully, at the end, you'll be someone else. And you just use that word transformation. And I find that's true for me, that that, that, uh, I'm not the same person I was before my husband died. Yeah. And I've learned yeah. so much. And I thought, gosh, it's a shame that it took his dying for me to learn so many important lessons. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, you quote that, in the end, you'll be someone else. So mm-hmm. you've been, I think, describing how you are different now. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Now, there's another um, entity, maybe it's the word I want to use, that you bring up in your book. A lot of people uh, mention Greek mythology. But you pull a character from Irish mythology. Yeah, from the Celtic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. so uh, who was this person, uh, if I want to use that term? Yes, this this mythical being or person. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, well, again, my, my good friends, Bill and Shosh, who had uh, contact with uh, a woman, a, a Celtic 
woman up, up in the Seattle area, Washington, who listens to a story about a person, and then she takes and finds uh, a myth that she feels corresponds with who that person is. And so Bill told her the story and, uh, you know, the story of John's death and, and some of the other traumas that I'd gone through in my life. And she pulled a character called Mish. And she is uh, the ancient wild woman. She's one of the most ancient goddesses or Celtic mytholo- mythological beings. You know, she excuse is, me, Cheryl, since uh, this is Celtic, you might spell that uh, name it's for us. M-I-S, but it's pronounced Mish. Yeah. And so it's the story of this woman whose father is killed in, in battle and she goes wild and goes off into the mountains and she grows hair and, and long nails and she becomes a wild woman with her grief. And um, then this uh, king decides that he's going to try and uh, bring her back down and puts out that whoever can come and uh, get her back will, you know, help her, will will gain gold and will gain land. And so what happens is that this uh, minstrel, this comes, he decides that he's going to come get her. And so in essence, he sings and loves her back into life and brings her back into the world again. So it's the story of wildness and grief and how love, and I, you know, yes, it's in this, in the mythology, it's it's a man, it's another person, but I think it, it could be another person or it could be yourself it can be a child, whatever love uh, that you can bring into your life can transform you and heal you back from, you know, the, the wilds of grief. So this myth is, is featured in the second part of the story as I come back from Montana and the fishing trip and then back into, okay, well, now here we go. It's day-to-day life. And Nancy, I bet you know this because after the death of your husband, it's like, okay, well now, okay, here we are. It's day-to-day life and I have to, you know, pay the bills and and all those things that seem strange to do, but it's, it's how it goes. Yeah. 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 Because for 45 years, I'd been a part of a team and then suddenly I was, had to learn a new way of living. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking Mm -hmm. of learning, uh, you I think have something to teach us who read your book. And if you would like, I'd uh, like you to go to this uh, section of your book where you uh, tell us about the transformation of grief. And it starts, we hurl, we whirl around in a dizzying dance. Yeah. So just read that for us. We whirl around in a dizzying dance from darkness to light and then light to darkness and back again. Our lives explode, but we are carried along regardless of our limited ideas and plans. The shadows of the departed continue to haunt our dreams. Grief has no finish line, no real conclusions. We get dealt a hand we didn't want and have to play it anyway. You gotta play it as it lies. And in the end, you do just that, even when you don't feel like it, maybe especially when you don't feel like it, because it's the right thing to do. And so my story remains unfinished. It's not an exceptional story. I'm not special. I'm not famous. I'm just a woman living the same grieving story that has been lived by humans throughout time, because loss is the inevitable price we pay for being alive. And the more deeply we connect with others, the heavier the loss is to carry. You change, your grief changes, your life changes, and still you continue. The exhaustion of sadness becomes a part of your flesh and over time turns into scar tissue that will remain a part of you forever. From the early morning, early hour horror of John's heart's rupturing, the moment when the ground I had known was torn away by a terrible wind and I was blown into a timeless, watery world to the banks of the Madison River where I nearly sank into the drenched earth along with John's ashes, to the mice-killing fields in my garage, to the clink of glasses of bubbly rosé with strangers with whom for a moment I found community. I've had to find my way. And somehow, through the storms, the raging winds, and the torrential rain that swept through me like an uncontrollable tempest, the roots deep within my being held. 
These roots that are wound around my heart and set in the deep ground of my being did not break, even as I was carried by a monstrous crying wind into unrecognizable realms that left me breathless and weary to my bones. Our roots, when deep, hold us through the ravages of grief, through the darkness of winter, and through the losses that will eventually come and take us away from all that we have known and loved. These are the words of psychotherapist and author Cheryl Crowder, and she was reading from her book, Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. People might wonder, well, how are you doing now, Cheryl? Well, I, you know, I, it's interesting when I'm reading, I can feel, you know, behind my eyes, I can feel the tears, but I have, uh, of course, it's been now uh, six years since John's death. And so I've moved on and um, uh, like we do and uh, have my life. I'm doing okay. And um, okay, to traveling and I'm, oh, the COVID thing kind of was <laughs> knocked mm-hmm. me over for a while. Like I think it did all of us, but uh, moving into the world and uh, have a great community and um, moving forward. Yeah. Well, I would like to remind people that you have two previous books because people listening, I know a lot of people that uh, could probably benefit from these Mm -hmm. two books that grew out of your being a cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. And uh, one is a workbook for people telling their cancer story, and the other is a guide for caregivers. And Mm -hmm. I think that that one in particular would be very helpful for people. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, uh, both of those books grew out of my cancer experience and also my my work in the field of psycho-oncology, which is the uh, emotional uh, traumas and what happens in, in, in oncology, in the world of oncology and cancer that often doesn't get talked about and the need to heal from from that uh, that journey, not only the patient, but the partners and the families and the caregivers and everybody is part of that whole uh, traumatic experience of cancer, yeah? Yeah, and let me give the title again of your latest book. The latest book that Cheryl has written is called Odyssey of Ashes, A Memoir of Love, Loss, and Letting Go, and the author is Cheryl Crowder. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you, Nancy. This has been a very meaningful time. Now we're presenting a new segment here on Nancy's Bookshelf that we're calling The Writer's Room, where we're featuring short segments by North State authors. Snow Walk. The girl and your mother are traversing through the new snow all alone in the early dark on the suburban street with branches bare and sharp, drawing abstract moon shadows across their path. Stars are held in the spaces between branches, close enough to consider their own for this walk at this time. Electric blue TV light and yellow kitchen bulbs shine through windows, but this light stops short. It is too heavy, stuffed with dinner and jingles and talk of the nearly finished day. It cannot penetrate their quiet white walk in the cold cerulean air. They are separate from houses and families. They are silent and together and the same for this walk at this time. Daria Booth. Find the string that's out of tune. My heart is a mahogany instrument, ancient, reddened by her hair and California wines, musical after twilight, durable because the songs it plays were here before the first wind spoke love's name. My frets were always with me because language requires a home of labor, paternal worry, and recuperative silence. My heartstrings have learned to play together, though each carries a ragamuffin note. Guy Clark tuned his guitar like a cardiac surgeon who delights in the mischief of an ornery muscle. He knew rhythms are unstable, wounds are lessons, and scars are infallible memories. His credo, find the string that is out of tune and make the rest of the strings match its timber. My melodies are sugary because of Dr. Pepper, warm because of my good fortune, and rhapsodic because women have cradled me and plucked the magic from my holy center. This is Robert Chancy. Thank you. 
my stepdaughter said. I don't like it when you call me your kid. I smirked and thought, nah. She said, you didn't give birth to me, change my diapers, or teach me how to walk or read. Okay. See, I always see red when I'm at home. It's a monochromatic shading between love and anger. And in those sentences, I immediately went to black. What I wanted to tell her is, remember that time when you were nine and we had to sleep on the bathroom floor because you were nauseous and your fever wouldn't break? Or when your ears got infected from the Claire's piercings? Or your fifth grade speech that you hyperventilated through till you were sick? What about the first day of seventh grade? And the first breakup of seventh grade? And the chick flicks with the ice cream and tears all night? Because I do. I remember every time I risked my life to make your space safe. Threw my body in front of a man who swears I took his wife so he has no problem trying to take my life. You are, by all means, my daughter. Now she's 18 and leaving the basic training in 15 days. And we haven't said three words for eight months. And I'm still trying to convince her that she is my daughter. But doubt seeps in because I don't know what to say now. When she's facing more restrictions on her body than rules from Alcatraz, when her freedom is tied to a flag and an eagle that have ripped apart all the people that made her, but she's sure that's what her freedom looks like. I called my own mom frantically, begging her to give me the words, and she admits, I still don't know what to say to you. The silence means you're doing what every mother tries to do. Balance the tightrope of you screwing her up or the world. Nurse Wallace. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. I would also like to thank my guest, Cheryl Crowder, who is author of the book Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.